Welcome to Talking Time Podcast. Today, Rick and I have a special guest with us, uh, Giles Ellis, founder, or as he calls himself, principal keeper of Schofield Watch Company. Hi, Giles. How are you? Hi there, guys. I'm very well, thank you. Tell us a bit about the principal keeper. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lighthouse thing. The lighthouse uh, is a motif that we have adopted um, originally by accident, actually, because the first watch I made, I needed a way of showing potential customers over the internet uh, that it was great British engineering, that it was a trusted friend, that this watch was uh, a great timekeeper uh, and had a mixture of modernism and romance. So looking back at the past and the lighthouse was the perfect symbol for all of those things. And so I decided upon Smeaton's Tower, which is now on Plymouth Hoe, uh, a, a lighthouse that was on the Edison Rocks. Uh, unbelievable structure, super cool. And that was engraved onto the back of the first watch, the signalman. And the power reserve, that watch had a power reserve. Uh, the power reserve was uh, at the 12 o'clock position. And it meant that I could orientate the hand to, uh, to sweep its 70 degree arc, typical of a power reserve hand, to sweep uh, with symmetry across, across the dial. And it meant that I had a, a a logo to signify the power reserve, uh, and that was a beam of light from a lighthouse. So that was actually was not actually our, our logo, but all the journalists thought it was. So it became our logo for a time. This beam of light uh, symbol for the power reserve, um, and the lighthouse uh, has stayed with us. And over the, the, the there was a there was a time period where i really struggled to get movements for my first watch and so there was a big delay between taking orders and actually shipping those watches during that time i worked on the thematics of Schofield, so everything about the brand i wanted to have the integrity that you could find in the watch across every single touch point of the business and we were very fortunate to be able to take the british coast as our domain so a lot of watch companies like different domains, okay? You've got the on-the-sea watch brands, you've got the under-the-sea watch brands, numerous watch brands that occupy the sky, okay? A few on the land. Uh, there's even golf watches and chef's watches and all sorts of uh, uh, obscure, lots in space, of course. And we took the coast and that's our domain and nobody else occupies that space. Uh, there's been a few cheaper quartz brands. Maybe they've come and gone now. I don't know. There was one called Shore Projects. Um, but the coast is our thing. And of course, the lighthouse is a great icon device uh, to symbolize the, the British coast as well. Uh, also meaning that we're a little bit sea, we're a little bit land. Um, so that's really where we're coming from. Principal Keeper is the main keeper of a lighthouse. And so that's me. Katia said to me before we hit record, don't worry this guy knows how to talk oh yeah <laughs> well i've listened to a few of your seminars actually before and absolutely loved it i watched i watched a whole lot of them that from salon qp back then it was Thank really you. entertaining and i could see audience was captivated well i was as well i remained extremely quiet there for the last few minutes and we're going to have to unwind and unravel time a little bit here and go back and ask you to give us a little bit of the origin story because i purposely I've not done any research because I want to be taken along on the journey as the listener is that perhaps doesn't know too much about you. So give us your intro. You don't look like the standard watchmaker kind of guy. No, my my um, introduction to watchmaking um, was really out of vanity. And it was the simple fact that I could not afford the watch that I wanted. I had reached a point where I felt like so many men do that I'm allowed a fancy watch. 
is a justifiable expense. However, I couldn't afford it. Um, I was a graphic designer earning very little doing local business uh, signage, websites, logos. So I certainly cut my teeth in that area by way of branding um, for many years. And the watch was something that I struggled to justify to my wife to say I need three and a half. In fact, it was somewhere between a Bell & Ross, a Panerai and an Ebi. I like an Ebi. And the Anibi watch was the one I, I actually wanted. And it, again, it was more it was more expensive than the others and uh, it wasn't going to happen. So I set about designing my own. I have confidence in that area because I've uh, modified everything. I've decorated everything and made my environment and many of the things that I love, I've made them myself and made them my own and put my own mark on them. This is from hand-stitching my own wallets. This is from uh, modifying and designing and manufacturing mountain bike components to be different to everybody else's. I like difference. And hi-fi, another, another love of mine, is something that uh, can get more extreme than watches, actually, from a pricing point of view. Uh, I couldn't afford an amplifier I wanted, so I, I built my own. And it took a year from beginning to end. I have retained none of the knowledge that I had in order to build this amplifier from scratch. It sounded great in the end. Um, and there are about six in existence, and they are, in fact, branded Schofield because to build an amplifier for me meant that it was the whole package. It's not going to be in a cigar box. You know, it had to be in a, in a proper uh, chassis. It had to be fully engraved. I'd even go as far as trying to get it CE marked, you know, so it could be properly uh, uh, safety regulated. And this is just for myself, a couple of mates and my dad, actually, uh, that still have these, these Schofield amps. And back then, there's two Schofield model revolvers that are back to back. So the hilts of the guns, the, the grips form a kind of skull shape. And the first watch I ever designed had this logo, these two American Civil War revolvers. That's where the name Schofield comes from. Um, so let's go back to vanity. We were there and uh, with this confidence and my love of the industrial estates of the UK meant that I could have a go at designing my own watch. And that I did very, very happily, though it took a long time to understand the official language of wristwatches. That is the language that they speak classically. Um, if you go to design a watch as a graphic designer, then quite often you end up with a fashion watch because that's graphic design. It's very ephemeral. These trends pass. And so my first designs would certainly look like a fossil watch or a diesel watch or something that you'd associate with a, with a fashion watch. Um, so I had to spend a long time understanding what that classical language of, of watches is. How could my watch sit in a duty-free cabinet alongside other well-known brands and not look out of place? That was, in fact, one of, one of my briefs. And so you get to a sticking point, and that sticking point is always the, the dial and the handset because there are minimum orders and those minimum orders come with tooling costs uh, and everything else. Now, my case is a complicated case, but I could have made and afforded to make a one-off for myself of the case. Um, but dials, I could have done a laser engraved at the time, flat dial, uh, and bought some off-the-shelf hands and had a Franken watch of, of some description, but it would not have satisfied my need in a watch. The trouble is, with the watches I was looking at, uh, there was always a compromise. And that's the trouble. You get 90% there with a watch you love, but there's something that just isn't right for you specifically. 
So I could design my first watch 100% for me specifically. And that's not arrogance from a designer's point of view. That's just confidence, right? I know that I could make this thing for me exactly how I want it. And that's, and that's how the Signalman was made. It was a, a watch that had no compromise. It was everything I wanted it to be. Um, it could satisfy all of my needs by way of design, branding, uh, and functionality, size, all of these things. Um, but they all came with large minimum order and tooling costs. And so in order to commit to that, I had to borrow money. I had another business restoring musical instruments, uh, American ones, banjos, mandolins, and ukuleles. And my whole house rattled with these. I also love mountain biking and I sold my mountain bikes and I sold all the remaining stock of the musical instruments in order to help. And I borrowed some money uh, in order to be able to fund that initial deposit on various minimum orders in order to get that watch up and running. And the cost, of course, comes with a good dial, good handset, good movements, all of that stuff. And it uh, is expensive. And so the whole project turned out way more expensive than an Anibi watch, which, of course, would have satisfied the 90% uh, that I just spoke about. But I'd already started down this line. In fact, I remember the conversation with my wife saying, shall we do this? Shall I do it? Shall I go for it? And it was, yeah, let's go for it. See if I could see if I can do something with this. How many did you make, Giles, of the first ones? Yeah, so we did two versions, a DLC-coated version and a polished version, a full-polished watch, which was unusual back in the day because there's very few brands doing full-polish. Full-polish is a nightmare because any touch in in manufacture, you've got to scratch. When is back in the day? What year are we talking about here? We're, yeah, we're talking 2010. So okay. I offici- people think that Schofield started in 2011. I was selling watches in 2010. And I started designing the watch in 2008. And I lived with pictures of the watch all around me all the time so that I wouldn't tire of what I had designed. Because that's the other thing. You don't want to get fatigued by the look of something. Again, that that indicates fashion, not classic style. Classic style never goes away. You look at a Patek from the 1950s and it's as beautiful then as it is now, right? And I needed to be able to understand that and, and put that into the design once I figured it out. I think I did. Um, and when, when I, uh, first had watches to sell, I only have one wealthy mate and he bought a watch. And so the minimum order was, was a hundred watches. And so I had 99 left to sell essentially. When it came to actual production, we made 300 of the polished ones and 100 of the DLC ones. They were limited edition. My business plan was to sell three watches in year one, 20 watches in year two, and 100 watches in year three. That was where I was at. Naivety all the way, right? I had no knowledge about the watch industry at all. Where did you get those figures from then? Or were you just hopeful? That, yeah, they were, they were made up based on the fact that uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, I had to start somewhere. Three watches in year one I thought was okay. My mate bought one. Uh, so two left to go. I didn't think anybody would be interested. I didn't think anybody would see the details that I had put into the project. I didn't think anybody would get it at all. Um, the price was a really tricky one because I did uh, a database, a large database of brands and particular watches that I felt were similar to mine, watches I liked. And then I would score them against uh, various 
touch points. So, uh, for example, things that we may value when buying a watch online. So how, how deep is the water resistance? 200 meters is better than 100 meters, right? So 200 meters would score slightly higher on my little uh, mathematical metric uh, than, than a 100 meter watch, which would score higher than a 30 meter watch. Okay. I made mine 500. So I could ramp <laughs> that score Christ. up. Yeah. Very thorough research, Giles. Yeah. Very, very, th- very <laughs> thorough. And I also had to score for cachet and history, of which I scored zero and zero. Panerai back in 2010 were an it brand. So they score five out of five for cachet and three out of five for history because it's not something people knew about. Rolex weren't so big then. So they scored five out of five for history because that's what they were about back in 2010, but only three out of five for cachet because they weren't a trendy brand at the time compared really? to something like Panerai. Wow. Yeah. So with this score, I could then add my own details in. Did it have a shark skin strap? That was my equivalent of a crocodile strap, which is better than a leather strap. Does it have a t- deployment buckle? No, mine didn't. It had a, a normal thumbnail buckle, so it didn't score so highly there and various others to be able to give me the price. So I had that metric would marry up to the retail prices for all of those other watches. And it, it did show up a few a few outliers, let me tell you, watches that are actually better value and watches that are too expensive uh, for what they're actually offering. Uh, perceived um, but, value, hey? That's yeah, the one. Yeah. So yeah. I, 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 sh- I shouldn't reveal what, what that is, but it's, <laughs> but it's interesting. And it's a constant criticism of some of these brands, actually. Um, in defense of Panerai, for example, they were, they were considered ex- expensive at the time uh, for what they are. But actually, in my database, they were spot on, absolutely spot on their pricing called, uh, for my database. Um, so it gave me a price. Uh, that price, of course, was too, way too cheap because uh, for how much the watch costs me to make. When you do minimum orders of a, a hundred watches, it means the unit cost is extremely expensive. Um, and that was the problem. I was using this new Soprod movement. It was very expensive with a power reserve and a GMT. We'd done this fine finishing, this fully polished with brushing between lugs, this uh, engraving on the case back. Um, the movement is also encapsulated in a further uh, fully sealed movement holder system. The dial is stepped with appliques, with loom. Uh, we'd already paid for custom loom, but it was too dark and it doesn't work. Uh, that's the trouble with, with custom looms. Uh, custom handset, custom date, uh, all, all the all the bits, right? A fancy box made in the UK, paperwork, all sorts of bits and pieces. And the watch was just too cheap. But I was internet only and I had no choice because if I'd sold it at one pound more, I would have been laughed out of town, right? Who's this newcomer with his eight grand watch? It wouldn't have worked at all. It was three and a bit. So we launched officially at Salon QP in the uh, November of 2011. And uh, we sold, I think it was 15 watches at Salon QP itself. And then I sold a further 200 watches within the first six months of 2011. So suddenly we were the guys we were approachable. We weren't stiff by way of owning an independent watch company so people could come and speak to us. We would travel to meet people back then to show them the watches because we didn't have a shop and we didn't have retailers. And we were all over the internet. So my first business card has got 50 different channels on the back. We only had two watches to push and it meant that I could be on YouTube. It could mean I was on Vimeo as well and we were on the fancy and we were on... Vimeo! Remember when that was popular? Yeah. We were on all of those places and the Swiss were behind by another three years. 
Okay, they hadn't cottoned on to social media at all. They had these ghastly web European websites that were too small for any of our monitors, you know, and we were way ahead of that curve. We had a cool website because, of course, I'd spent two years developing everything outside of the watch. And that included the website, the branding, the thematics, the copy, the feel and everything else. You've got a really cool website. I really enjoyed uh, reading. It's really yeah. the, co- the copy is very different. I mean, everything you do is very different. Um, and that's, I think, is the way you want to be, right? Absolutely. You're right. Uh, homogeny is something I, I really, really dislike. And I will always try and do something different. Or let me expand on that. Um, I, I consider every decision. I don't let anybody else make a decision for me. And so if there's a decision to be made, actually, I, this is across nearly all of my life, I will think about what you could do rather than just diving into the obvious thing. It's like, oh, okay, so I've got to put this in a box, this watch. What, if it's a box, how does it have to be a box? Does it have to be square? Let's start with that, you know, rather than having the constraints of, oh, I want this to fit through the letterbox. I don't. It's going to be carried to the front door by FedEx or UPS. So let's think about what other choices. Choices I have to design. So I'll design something, send it to 30 different suppliers and wait till I get feedback. And if they all say, no, it can't be done, then maybe I have to rethink the design or I will keep pushing uh, to get something that is unlike everybody else's thing. Trouble is, makes it all expensive to manufacture. You know, if you're making boxes and you're specifying wood types and you don't want foam on the inside because you don't like foam, it means then you've got to think of something else. So we've got cedar blocks inside our uh, boxes that the watch is sitting because it's soft. We don't treat it with anything, so there's no fuming that could that could cause an oxidization of any metal parts, nothing like that. So it sits in raw cedar, plus it smells nice, but it's heavier, so it costs more to ship. So it's always a push and pull game between fighting homogeny, which is a force, okay, because everybody wants to do this thing, like buy a box from China that costs $5 a piece, but you've got to buy 5,000 of them. I can't fit 5,000 into my little shop. So I have to buy smaller quantities, and that ramps the price up, which is why Schofield has never been able to go retail. We've Even with Selfridges and Harrods and all of those stores saying, can we stock Schofield? Come and have a meeting. I have the meeting. I can't move past their 50, 60% that they require to put that, plus the loss of material for me, as in it's been badly handed. It's sat in a hot shop window. All of these issues uh, that you have, I cannot afford any of that. So here we are, still exactly the same, doing exactly the same thing. We've been a bit bigger. We've been busier. We've been less busy. I've had staff. I've not had staff. And this is now 12 years of doing this, actually a bit longer, but uh, let's say 12 years um, of running an independent watch company in the UK. Bloody hell. This is this is epic. This, I, I wish I'd spoken to you years ago. <laughs> I will let you ask more questions, Katya, because I'm just in awe. Well, now that we've spoken about all the incredible detail that goes into every single watch, it'd be good to know what our watch is made of. Uh, where do you make them? Um, just a bit more about all that detail. So um, when uh, it was myself, Pinion and Bremont making watches in the UK, this was before... Uh, Garrick and Vertex and Fears came along. The whole discussion of made in the UK and made in Britain was actually 
quite a hot potato. And I remember doing a discussion with uh, Christopher Ward and Giles English, and uh, we had a, a panel discussion about that. A hot potato because it's very, very difficult to make uh, parts in the UK where there is no uh, precedent. There is nothing for me to rely on. I can't walk down the street and go into a dial manufacturer and then move on to a crown manufacturer. This doesn't happen here. And in fact, there's no retention of knowledge even. So you can't call upon some old boys and say, you remember when you made watches before the quartz crisis killed it in the UK. Um, uh, it's not there. So you're on your own. And if you're actually on your own, like me, you're really on your own. There's no help with VAT. There's no help with uh, secondhand watches and how you handle those. Um, there's no help regarding regarding servicing and warranty issues and uh, provisions for repair. So you have to figure all of that out. And a watch business is actually a very complicated business to run by the nature of the verticalization conundrum, meaning you cannot, I mean, got to ex exclude Bremont from this discussion for a minute, because again, that has its own complexities, but you cannot verticalize to the point where you can just say, yeah, I make everything in the UK. Uh, and when you dig into the weeds of those that say they can make everything in the UK, you just you just wouldn't bother. It would be mad. You wouldn't make sapphire crystals in the UK. Okay, they are grown in China and milled, machined in China, and then ours are uh, like everybody else's. Uh, and then they come over to us, and actually we then send them to Switzerland to be recoated because the best coatings are done in Switzerland. So the crystals are Chinese, but the coatings are Swiss. Now this is typical. Okay, you may not. You may get the Chinese to do the coatings for you. We prefer because we use domed crystals, so we really like to have fancy coatings to minimize reflections. So we have to do that. So provenance is very tricky to, to, to get down. And there was a time when we had uh, a carbon fiber watch called the Black Lamp, where we had a little bit on the website that showed what percentage of the value of the watches was UK and what percentage of assembly was done in the UK. So the movements we use are Swiss. They're either ETA, Unitas, Soprod or STP, but we always strip them down to completely separate parts and rebuild them. And that's because we don't know how long they've been sitting on shelves, what's happening with the state of lubrication, the timing. We do it our way. So we completely assemble a movement, even though it arrives to us built. We completely rebuild that. All of my cases currently are made in the UK by a machine shop that's mm, a typical machine shop, brilliant British machine shop. Okay. Uh, when I say that, it's the opposite of a German Swiss machine shop because they tend to be grubby. They tend to have swarf everywhere, oil everywhere. Okay. Lots of machines crammed into very small spaces. Um, and these guys are predominantly military contractors. They are, um, I've been working with them for years. They're amazing. Working with them for years is the really important point because, of course, we've had time to learn together how to improve and improve and improve the product uh, over all of those years. You can't just bunny hop around suppliers. You have to have loyalty. You have to have conversation. I prefer to get stuff done in the UK for two main reasons. One, I can communicate in English and that helps, especially with technical jargon because it's really difficult otherwise. And you can go and kick their head on if they make a mistake. You can go right down there and show them and shout at them. I remember when the, uh, the Germans who built my first watch, they caught an engraving. They modified Smeaton's Tower. It was sitting on Ediston Rock 
rocks. The rocks have a particular profile. To me, anyway, they modified that vector ever so slightly. I went ballistic. I was like, you don't touch my designs unless I've done something really naive, in which case I want advice. But you don't, you don't touch it, okay? Because you don't get the specifics. I do, and they're important to me. So that's what happens in the UK. So my cases are done in the UK and the movement holders in the UK and the case backs are all done in the UK. The dials and hands on the most part are German or Swiss, mainly German. The crowns are Swiss. The seals, they almost certainly come from China, but then are shipped and sold through other intermediaries. The crystals, like I said, are Chinese, but have Swiss coatings. Um, the straps, uh, which is a whole topic uh, for us because straps is such a big and important part of our business and for the whole almost bespoke part of the business because we sell so few watches. You change the strap, it's, 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 we're getting close to unique. You know, We're not far off, uh, anybody with those combinations. I source all of the fabrics myself. Most of them are British from British mills, but they're also Italian uh, and French as well on the most part, uh, and leathers from leather tanneries. And then I send them to Germany to be machine-made because I want machine-made straps because I want them uniform. I don't want handmade. They have to be uniform, so they're completely interchangeable and you get the same vibe as in shape, taper, whole size, uh, all of those things uh, across the entire Schofield range. So that shows where the provenance comes from, which naturally means that the assembly is 100% assembled in the UK because we've broken everything down to separate parts. All the finishing to the cases I do myself. So we're now recording this in my shop. We're actually at one high street shop. That's a fairly new development since COVID. Uh, people now come to me. I don't have to drive around showing watches in my, in my, in my coat. You know, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. So they come here. It's a destination place and it's a shop and you come here to buy something. It's good timing to let us, to let the um, listeners know where the shop is based. So you have a queue tomorrow. This shop is uh, in a very small Sussex countryside village. There are four shops in the high street. I have the news agents opposite me, which happens to be a UPS drop-off point, which is perfect, right? Next to me is a hairdresser. And the other shop opposite is a pharmacy. So there's only four. It's a little old high street. There's a castle ruins at the end, end of the road near a town called Stenning. Uh, our, our village is called Upper Beading and we're about five miles north of Brighton and Shoreham by sea. So the coast is visible and I'm, I'm, I'm on a river and that river you can see go all the way out to sea just five yards from the shop front. So that's the shop. Uh, but I have a workshop at home and it's in that workshop that I do the dirty work, which is the bead blasting, the etching, the polishing and other bits and pieces. So I finish all of the cases myself. Um, and so that's as far as you can go with the cases. Then all of these parts are collated by me. QC'd by me, then they go off to my watchmaker. And it's a guy I've had a number over the years, but this guy I've been working with for a, a long time. He's a one man band. He's brilliant. He gets me entirely and he's nice. <laughs> I say, uh, with, with a, with a, a kind of, um, touch of sarcasm about watchmakers that generally, generally can be quite difficult people sometimes. Uh, that's no bad thing because they're very particular. Uh, this guy's very easy for me and we, we've become great friends and he does all of my assembly uh, and my builds and any warranty or repair work that comes through. So it twos and fro's between us. So it's one pair of hands dealing with everything start to finish. Absolutely. And uh, uh, and all of the work is, is uh, of the other work is done by me or a set of suppliers. So I represent watchmaking in the UK as it used to be back 
in the in the fifties, in the sixties, where you have one guy and he would be he would have a skill set, so he would do some things, but he would then go to his mate up the road who was a case engraver, or go to his mate who was a, a crown maker or or a spring maker or any of these things until that project was brought together. And that's how it quite often worked. There wasn't a hundred percent verticalization in any single skill because there's so many skill sets involved. And their industries in their own right. That is still true for me. So I have to find these skilled businesses, people in order to help realize my creativity. And there's always a stumbling block there. Quite a few of them are actually not from the watchmaking world, Giles. Is that right? Yeah. So again, that comes back to me not wanting to be uh, the same as everybody else means that I will approach people outside of the watch industry. So an example I use is the caseback laser engraving that we do. So we've had the beautiful precision German engraving, uh, which is a mixture of machine graving and acid etching. Then I wanted to do something with a very high-powered laser because it oxidizes the steel. So just with the pass of a laser, many passes of the laser, it oxidizes the metal below and you get black without having to do a paint fill, which is where you etch deeply, fill with paint, scrape it off, and you're left with a nice smooth impression. I wanted texture. I like texture. And so we would use this company, but this industrial laser, not used for trophies, this is used for marking numbers on a mold that might cast your wheelie bin, for example, Mm. the little numbers at the bottom, big, big molds. And so we worked with them for years, but they could not do concentric alignment. So if you have a case back that has a crystal, so an exhibition case back, that means that case back has a bezel. And getting a ring of words to sit within that bezel uniformly with equal amount of space is very, very difficult to do. They could not do that. And so it's that that meant that I had to be creative and design a case back that had full bleed. It bled off the edge of the design. So if it was out quarter of a mil, nobody would ever notice. And so the first one was, in fact, that. Then over the years, I developed that doing these full pieces of artwork on my case backs. And again, with a technique of full bleed that meant that if it was out quarter of a mil, you wouldn't notice because there was no, there was no, uh, constraints for, for that design. Um, and this has just developed over time into me being as creative as I possibly can with the technology that I have. Uh, in this case, it's industrial laser. And, th- and actually they got better at alignment as years went on as well. So now they are perfect at alignment, but we've developed this creativity where we can do these very deep, dark, uh, heavy engravings. Realizing the creativity is absolutely key. And you often have to go outside of the watch industry to get that because in the watch industry, they only do what they do. Okay. Nobody likes to work outside their comfort zone until you find that special person that's willing to do it. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's a, that's a constant thing for us. A, a, another yeah. fight that we have. Talking about case parks, they definitely deserve special attention. Recently, I've been on a trip of elevation. How can I elevate Schofield? How can I take what is already cool? Uh, it's good. I'm very proud of everything about it. Um, but how can I elevate things? Because people see your work and a rising tide raises all ships. Okay. So 
other people will see my boxes and go, oh, I love that box. Okay, I want to do something similar. And then they do. And that really pisses me off because <laughs> I, I, am I losing my edge or uh, I haven't? I've just lost uh, 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 an opportunity for somebody to see something that is accessible, as in they can ex- access that technology or that creativity. And so they do. So I have to keep being really creative to be able to elevate over and above that, which I've done recently with the B5 case back, which was this full enamel case back that uh, berserk you you have to have a look at the b5 enamel case back based on uh, uh, cherry blossoms how that was made uh, and it's meant to be a piece of art this is my artistic expression on the back of the watch it's always business at the front party at the back but how can i how can i leverage that party at the back that also means the instruction book that also means the box and the packaging that also means customer service that's party at the back is how can i leverage that to be the best it can possibly be because we have financial constraints meaning i can't just design a case back and have it made at whatever the cost because again that would get silly especially with my ideas uh, and naivety and so i am always constrained by finances so how again can i leverage that to make me get the very best I can afford for that particular project. How many watches a year is it you're doing? Because you've alluded to the fact it isn't that many. No, it really isn't. And it ranges uh, between 100 and 300 a year. And this depends on what models we have available. If we have a £10,000 watch uh, available and not a £3,000 watch, then the numbers will drop in that year, obviously, because it's harder to sell a 10 grand watch than a 3 grand watch. I'm about to bring out uh, a cheaper watch um, and I expect to sell more of those. So we are, at the moment, it's just me, Schofield. Okay. Uh, I've had staff, but because I moved into the shop, the shop's small, uh, staff had to no longer, they couldn't fit in the shop. And actually that was amazing because it allowed for me to be really streamlined, really efficient. Everything's one thick deep so I can see it. I know what I have. I get rid of anything that I'm not going to use again, or I recycle stuff. Uh, the cost of QC was a project that I did at the beginning of the year, which was a beautifully machined aluminium, aluminium picture frame that had seconds of dials that I've kept for 12 years. And so it'd be all stacked up like a aircraft uh, panel of dials that you could now touch because they're not behind glass. They sat in a little rebate um, and I sold all of them that I could make with the dials that I'd been saving for 12 years. What else am I going to do with those dials, right? But this was an artistic interpretation of what I could do with those dials that had failed QC or were ordered in the wrong size. There's always those kind of mistakes, whether whether you like it or not. Um, And that was a really nice thing to be able to do. And the owners of those unique pieces of art are incredibly proud of those pieces and and want often the dials associated with the watches they own. Uh, So it's, it's a lovely thing to be able to do. So I will recycle. I will do the very best I can to have minimal uh, impact on the planet, but also minimal impact by way of entropy, chaos in my shop. It has to be highly organized because it is just me now. And I have to facilitate everything that I've spoken to you about, but also all of those different suppliers. You actually said on the bottom of your website, something along the lines of no plastic here. Yeah. So that, that no plastic logo is, is my own and it's a very difficult thing to fight. And so we try to minimize all plastic within Schofield. That's plastic packaging, talking to our suppliers saying, could you not wrap it in plastic? Could it come in paper uh, instead? And, and just doing our bit. I mean, it, we don't do it to sell watches. The, the green uh, 
of Schofield is not marketing. It's just sincerity. You know, I hand saw all the rubbish and recycle as much as possible. We've been using LED lights and everything, everything that we can possibly do. You know, we, we, we do, uh, give to those charities as much as we possibly can. It's not a lot because we don't make a lot. Uh, but it's something, you know, we do, we do something. And I do put that on the website, but it's never meant to be marketing. It's just meant to be sincerity. Uh, sincerity and integrity are things that I value above everything else. I never want to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. In fact, the first brochure I made in 2010 had renders of the watch because I didn't have photographs of it. And I wrote, this is a render on the renders because so many images are renders, but they're so sophisticated, it's hard to tell them apart other than the the focus and the cleanliness and all of those things. And so I will write that because I don't ever want to be accused of doing of of, of inflating anything uh, above its actual place and station, you know. So that's really important to me. And the green side of things is really important to me personally. It's on the website if you're interested, but nobody really looks at those pages. Yeah, it's not it's not a selling point. It's just a thing. Interesting you say that because way, way back when I started the Scottish Watches podcast just under five years ago, one of the first events I went along to was with Christopher Ward in Edinburgh. And they were talking about back then, which was early 2019, about what they were doing, sustainability, using bamboo, making the packaging ecological logical, recyclable, smaller, less weight, easier to store, not like the big massive boxes you get with an Omega or a Patek. And they had offered to everybody within the industry the keys to the kingdom. It was patent free, copyright free. Anybody that wanted it could get in touch and get copies of the details, you know, the spec list, where they got stuff from. And not one single person over the course of one year from that day forward, because we spoke to Mike after that, nobody was interested in finding out about it. It's very select few people that actually hold these values close to their heart. Yeah, I agree with that. And Chris Award, uh, company, Chris Award, um, they do some really cool things, I think. And uh, it's sad, actually, that it's not something, a certificate that you require uh, for, uh, for purchase. Um, the trouble is now it's default and people expect it to be the very baseline of what you do. Um, and therefore anything out of the ordinary, uh, other than that is, um, and this is also the luxury industry, right? Uh, a lot of blind eyes, a lot of turning away, the ubiquitous, uh, use of foams in packaging, uh, unnecessary, um, in my opinion. Uh, but very difficult to avoid, actually. In fact, we've got a situation right now where I'm trying to package something and it's almost impossible not to use foam. And so I had then, the only way I can think about doing this is elevating the foam packaging to be not throwawayable. That's a word. So it's not, you're not going to discard it as packaging. It's something you actually want to keep. So I have to elevate that to being something in its own right, an object that you want to keep, the box. Uh, rather than it just being packaging. So I have to spend more money on it to make it more environmentally friendly because you're not going to throw it away. Does that make sense? Very interested to see what you're making out of it, Giles. What sort of object your creative mind is making out of it, the foam bit. Uh, the, the foam bit is to house a very unusual shaped watch box. Uh, and that's the problem. It's because it's not square. Um, it means then that actually securing that safely without it just being wrapped in or in peanuts, you know, just thrown in a box with peanuts means that um, 
it's difficult to find a compromise. It's difficult to find a solution even. And in fact, I reached out and, and people are like, yeah, you could make it out of this or that or bamboo or this fiber or hemp now or, and have it molded. Uh, the cost is prohibitive uh, for, for a watch that's limited edition to 50 pieces. That's 50 bits of packaging. And so uh, how can I do it creatively? And we've done that for years because we use this cool, recycled, corrugated, looks like tiny egg box type structure. Um, and I start with the packaging and design the box to fit the fold creases in the egg box design. If you imagine the egg box is like top of a piece of chocolate, you can only fold it in certain places in those creases. So I have to make sure my watch box fits within those creases and then get an outer box made custom for that uh, because that's the constraining factor is the is this corrugated cardboard kind of cushioning that we use. Uh, and again, it's those kind of problems where you have to design around those limitations and not just say, here's my box, now I need to do some packaging. But in this instance, I've designed this super cool watch box, unlike anything the industry's seen. It's brilliant, even if I say so myself. I'm incredibly proud of it. I'm not going to tell you anything more about it because there's got to be a reveal for this uh, thing later. When's that going to be? Later this year. I've got okay. three watches happening this year. I'm sure we'll get back to those or get to those. Um, but... This is the case for one of those watches. And uh, finding what to do with the packaging that's environmentally friendly is very challenging indeed. Uh, and I'm still at it. And it's been it's been uh, five months. Yeah. Right. Well, there is no time like the present. And we only have about 15, 20 minutes left of the show. So let's talk about some watches. Right into the good stuff. I am have been for many years very fixed uh, for a price um, spread point of view for a family of watches and they generally range between three and four thousand pounds uh, for our watches um, and for a very long time I have when I say very long time it's years I've been designing a watch called the Obscura the Obscura is me all over right it's a watch for me now I do make all the watches for me and I'll, I'll get back to that in a sec um, but this is without me listening to that inner voice that says the people won't like that Giles or the people won't get that this is for me so for example I've designed a watch that very subtly okay tiny tiny shade differences between the hour and the minute hand it's just something I've wanted to do the hour and minute hand are in fact slightly different shapes nothing revolutionary it's been done before but I wanted it for this watch but it moves you away from that conservative safe space into a place that's much riskier okay the material for this watch is unusual the dial and handset uh, is unusual. Uh, it doesn't really look like a watch. I didn't want it to. I wanted it to look the whole thematics of this watch is like it's an artifact, like it's something you found. And if you did find it, you should probably report it or hand it into the authorities. That's the whole point with this. Is it military? Is it alien? You know, it's just it's just obscure. And, and that's the point. Um, and I've been elevating that now for another year uh, to a point where I've actually let it go. And this is a problem when you're a fastidious designer as I am, right down to the fourth decimal place of every single choice you can make. You have to cut it free, right? You've got to let mm -hmm. it go. Um, or rather, leave it alone. Yes. 
Yeah, leave it alone. And so I have elevated uh, the the case back for this one. This is on another level. And I have found uh, people that can help me realize my creativity without any compromise. And the freedom that gives me is so exciting. Could you imagine anything you think of, they can make. And that's where I am now. I am in a new relationship. It's very exciting. Honeymoon mm. period and all of mm. that. But I can design something and say, can we make this? And the answer is yes, but, and I'm like, okay, let's get into it and let's see what happens. So new case backs are different level. New dial and handsets are just made by the best people in Germany. I mean, as good as it gets. How could I elevate my crystals? We talked about elevation before. Okay, let's get the best coatings in the world. Same coatings Richard Meal uses. You know, let's use those same people. Okay, we can. So there's an elevation there. What can we do with crowns? You know, we have a good reputation for attractive cat crowns, good crowns, uh, interesting crowns. Let's elevate that again. I want to go to the next level of, of those, which I've done. Uh, case materials. We did the Black Lab Carbon, uh, which was a very early, early carbon watch. And so how can I elevate beyond that? So we're using a very special Damascus steel. doesn't look like folded Damascus. It looks like alien skin. It's cellular. It's really cool. That's for the Obscura. Uh, new strap materials, uh, new case, as I've as I've touched on. So that's the obscure. So that's going to be more expensive. So that means uh, that'll be up somewhere around seven and a half, eight, I think, uh, mm-hmm. uh, not including uh, UK VAT. That's where it'll be. But I'm also working on a watch called the Schofield Light. I haven't said that to anybody yet. Light as in lighthouse, but also light because it's a cheaper version of Schofield. It's also the first new case shape for a Schofield watch. All of my case shapes are the same. They've been the same since I designed it back in 2008. This one is the first new case shape that is a complete redesign. So it carries some of the language across, but it is a whole new look. The Schofield Light is more conservative, uh, without a doubt. Um, but it is, uh, ha- has that little nod to kind of military field watches. I-, I certainly wanted to go down that road, but I love designing it because I hated it for most of the time because it wasn't the Obscura, right? I- that's what I wanted. And so to reach a point where I want to wear the watch, I want to own it. I want to have it. Uh, I covet my own stuff, by the way. I don't, I own a watch company, not watches. Um, so, but to covet my own stuff. And that was the challenge with the Schofield Light was I have to do such a good job that I want it for myself. And it has to, it has to sit there equally, uh, with the Obscura, which is being designed for me, by me, if that makes sense, for my personality. So the Schofield Light, uh, will be around 1,800, I hope. Don't know yet. Let's see if I keep bumping up the value. And that's something I've got to try not to do with the Schofield Light is add this and add that. Whereas I do do that with the Obscura. So that's two of the three watches uh, that are coming this year. And there's a new uh, bronze watch. We've done bronze watches from the beginning. Uh, really early. Our first bronze watch was 2013. Um, and we were one of the first companies, I believe, nobody's argued this point with me yet, uh, to do force patinated watches. So you could choose whether you want it raw or in fact patinated. And I chemically treat those watches myself, get the, the color that I want to achieve uh, in my workshop. And uh, then we build that watch as an option with a patinated case or a raw case. Uh, we've done numerous ones in between, different materials, different levels of patination. Uh, but this is a, a, a new take on our classic bronze uh, beta watch. And so we'll have a new one of those coming up. That's also elevated uh, and therefore more expensive uh, at, for a change. Wow. Okay. And Katya was telling me before we hit record 
that you like to use titanium. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I don't know if you saw the article, but I, I write articles occasionally. They've recently been going on Substack, uh, where I, I publish those uh, under the moniker, I suppose, of Undercurrents, which is behind the scenes of Schofield Watch Company. There's also a, a Tumblr site called Undercurrents. Um, titanium, yeah, we use that right from the beginning. In fact, the first beta, there was a bronze one, a steel one, and a titanium one. And the titanium one, I used to heat myself in a kiln up to uh, very specific temperatures to make them go blue. And so way before uh, Gerald Gento was doing blue cases, you know, we we had done blue titanium cases, absolute nightmare uh, from a QC point of view because it, the heat would distort the cases. Uh, so I'd have to make sure and test them. We had a lot of seconds and uh, stuff that didn't reach the market because of that. So very expensive, but a lovely idea. And they hold their blueness. Uh, and some of them, some I've seen them, they're still blue, some of them. Uh, all varying shades. So we use titanium from uh, very early uh, uh, on from a British a manufacturing point of view, and also making that in the UK. Very, very demanding machining titanium. And we still do. The Strange Lights is a titanium model that we still sell. It's limited edition to 30 each, and we've still got some left of those, both with the red dial and the green dial. I love the Strange Lights, and I love titanium. I think titanium is the sexiest metal, right? Uh, and it's taken a long time to be accepted as a luxury material because it doesn't carry the heft that we require for luxury. You know, and recently Rolex have made a, a titanium uh, watch, which marks uh, a turning point for titanium in the luxury sector. I love titanium. I, I like materials, so I like doing things differently. Um, and the Strange Lights also has a titanium case back and an aluminium movement holder, so it's incredibly light, this watch. Schofields, you know you're wearing them, but they're designed in such a way that they don't capsize on the wrist. And it has the heft, uh, but it's not uncomfortable. It's very, very comfortable. Uh, the titanium version of our watches, you don't even know you're wearing it. They're that light. You say you can't pitch it a Schofield watch in an elevator, which I found really funny. I wanted to ask you which watch can you pitch in an elevator. But, uh, I, I but, don't um, think I could. That's a great question. <laughs> I, I, I would really struggle with that, which is why all the social media uh, and the Instagram back in the early days was so important because, uh, and the newsletter mainly, the Six Pips newsletter, uh, which is my biggest route to market, by the way, is the newsletter. That's how I voice Schofield is, is the Six Pips. And it goes out nearly every eight, every Thursday at eight fifteen, uh, and has and has done for many for many years. So I can't pitch Schofield, so I had to create a mosaic of Schofield. That was the way to articulate all of those details. Was just many times over every week, six articles. That's how I do it. Did you not also have a podcast series very very early on? That's right, we did. We had the Six Pips podcast series, uh, also named after the newsletter. Where did the Six Pips come from? Because when I was thinking of that, I was thinking of calling up the team. The Six Pips is exactly that. It's the BBC's uh, atomic and radio uh, signal clock that often happens at midnight and the sixth pip the end of the six pips when you mark midnight um and so i've kind of adopted that and uh yeah we called it the six pips for a while there was a there was a time where i tried to organize doing a, a broadsheet uh, for a marketing exercise and that was called the six pips newspaper um and uh, that just developed into the the uh newsletter that's uh, online and um yeah it's it's very successful for us it runs people listen people love it and if i don't do it uh guys get upset because they know when that bing happens at 8 15 they know it's the six pips and they some read it that night some read it over the weekend but uh i get a lot of feedback from it uh, a lot of love for it and it's not a hard sell it's not about stuff i mean rarely uh it's a push on product it's more poetry <laughs> pictures of the sea 
you know, it's that kind of stuff. And it's uh, talking about Sussex words for mud, you know, right down to what it's like for me keeping shop and running a watch company. It's very hand on on heart. You know, um, for me, it's uh, about sincerity. I've got nothing to hide. You know, I want people to know what's going on. I, I, I do believe that if you you can erode luxury by being too transparent if people know how something's made but we're in a different age now with the watch industry and it's more about getting behind something where you like what i'm doing generally we find that the guys coming back to your question catcher is the guys that like one thing they like it all and there's no hierarchy of Schofield watches. If you go out, you wear a Schofield. It doesn't matter which one in your collection. You know how you like to wear your most expensive thing for the time is the, the big deal event that you're going to. You'd wear, in our case, the Black Lamp, which was a £10,000 watch. It's not true. You know, we see guys wearing their beaters or their other limited editions and, and whatnot. It doesn't matter. It's a Schofield watch that matters. And once you're behind that and you get me and you get the brand, then you generally get pretty much everything I do, whether it's a torch, a pen knife, you know, a different strap, a watch wallet for it to go in, my new almanac, which is the book charting uh, year 21 uh, six pips newsletter and those kind of things. You know, once you're in, you're in. And for those guys, we also have the Boys Club, spelt as in shipping boy. And the Boys Club is our club, uh, Boys and Bells. Um, and uh, you're only allowed in uh, to that webpage if you've got a Schofield watch. And there I will put uh, up and coming information, special deals, uh, other bits and pieces uh, that I may come across and think is interesting. Um, for example, we just, I bought a load of silk ties at auction, uh, old Givenchy and Isaleron ties, uh, bought a box of those and had them all made into straps. You can only get two straps per tie. Um, and they nearly, I've got a couple left, but they nearly all, all sold. There must have been 25 different types of silk tie, uh, made into beautiful straps. They were very pretty, but that was just a boys club only deal, that one. And, uh, uh, matching ties and, and watch straps I thought was pretty cool. So, uh, yeah, that, that's what we do. So our guys, they do tend to be older, as in they've been down the high street. And when I say high street, I mean Breitling Omega Rolex and they've come out the other side of the high street. And now they want something that they can hang their coat on. They want something that has a narrative because that helps justify the ownership. If you know the story behind something, then it's much easier to adhere to that thing. And that's us. That's where we come in. We come in with more than just opening a watch, a box for a watch, and knowing what that watch looks like before you take it out of the box because your mate's got one and everybody else has got one and they're all over the internet, mm -hmm. you know. That's that's what it's like to own a Rolex. And I'm not dissing Rolex. Absolutely not. Um, but if I was to buy a Rolex, there'd be no thrills, no surprise other than me having a Rolex. OK, and even you turn it over and there's no party at the back. There's no engraving on the back of the watch generally. Um, and it's that that I want to be the opposite of. You know, I want to have that chat and I reveal things about watches and the brand years after people have taken ownership of a watch, something they didn't know. I can say, oh, by the way, because I've forgotten myself, did you know that this lines up with this or this means that? Uh, and it's then that, that they have a new engagement with their product. Uh, and that's very important to me. Well, I think the engagement, unfortunately, has to end just now for this podcast because we're at the end of the hour and you could probably speak for another eight 
There is so much information and I'm just gutted that this is the first time we've had the opportunity to chat because you're an absolute wealth and well of information that I'm going to be hitting up in the future for future projects. But tell the listeners if they've not already been onto the website and found you organically, how they can find Six Pips, your Instagram and your webpage. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. So it's scofieldwatchcompany.com. That's the main website. Um and from there, uh, in the footer of every page on the website, there's a sign-up form for the Six Pips newsletter. There's a dedicated Six Pips page, which is a, a slightly hit and miss, but uh, down to when I can update it, archive of the Six Pips. Undercurrents is undercurrents.uk. That's a Tumblr site uh, that I've been running for many years. And so its content has kind of changed as I've changed direction of that. But it does show some insight into what's going on in my head and what you may see in the future. I often put screenshots of developments up there and all sorts of bits and pieces. And then there's a YouTube channel, which is uh, very dry, uh, um, very uh, no thrills information on stuff where I will talk about a new box or the pen or something. Uh, Just me, just talking, no top and tail, very simple. Uh, that's the YouTube. And again, that's Schofield Watches, I think, or might be Schofield Watch Company. But you'll, you'll come across it with a quick Google. It's been an absolute pleasure, Giles. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you.